Welcome to FIA Speaks, a podcast at the centre of the futures, options and listed derivatives markets and the interesting people who work in them, run exchanges and regulate this industry. FIA's mission is to support open, transparent and competitive markets, protect and enhance the integrity of the financial system and promote high standards of professional conduct. Please note we have a lengthy disclaimer that I encourage you to listen to or read at FIA.org. But in short, this podcast is meant to be informative about this industry and should not be relied on for investment advice. And now, here's your host, FIA President and CEO, Walt Lucan. Well, welcome to FIA Speaks, a global markets podcast. In this episode, we're honored to have three distinguished and accomplished economists to talk to us about some of the major issues in today's markets. This podcast is sponsored by SmartStream. Trust your data, accelerate your future potential. More at smartstream-stp.com. Our guests today include three economists who have served as chief economists and or division head at the SEC and CFTC, those regulatory agencies that oversee the securities and futures markets in the United States. First, we have Jim Overdahl, who is a former SEC and CFTC chief economist and now works at Delta Strategy Group. He's the author of many publications and books and has received his PhD from Iowa State University. Eric Siri was also SEC chief economist as well as the director of the Division of Trading and Markets at the SEC. He is now the associate dean of faculty and finance division chair at Babson College. and He received his PhD from UCLA. And last but not least, Jeffrey Harris is currently finance chair at the Kogod School of Business at the American University. He, too, was chief economist and director of the Division of Economic and Risk Analysis at the SEC and was chief economist at the CFTC as well. He earned his Ph.D. from the Ohio State University. Welcome, gentlemen. It's great to see you all again. Good to see you all. Well, I've had the privilege of working with all three of these individuals uh, during my career, and I think we're in for a treat today. Uh, But I did want to talk about just the use of economic analysis in regulatory agencies nowadays. I mean, you both were in the belly of the beast working at regulatory agencies, trying to utilize economic analysis to help further uh, policy goals. And how would you grade the current use of economic analysis today um, as as policymakers try to put uh, policies in place compared to when where you were at the agencies? And maybe, Jim, I'll start with you first. Well, I mean, I think overall, the use of economic analysis has gained widespread acceptance throughout the regulatory agencies, particularly those that are subject to the Administrative Procedure Act. And I think that you've seen much more uh, focus devoted to uh, including economic analysis in the rulemaking process. You know, I noticed that the SEC, uh, one of Chairman Gensler's first hires, was a new chief economist. And I expect part of that is a result of his experience when he was at the CFTC and he found some of his regulatory initiatives being turned back by the courts uh, on the Administrative Procedure Act grounds. And so I think there is more attention paid to it. I would say one thing, it's a bit uneven, and that I think the SEC spends much more time, as you would expect, on those issues they expect might be challenged in court. I'd agree with Jim. I think uh, things have gotten better. I think one of the reasons for that 
is that those the regulatees are using data more effectively to make their case, which is pushing back on, on the regulator. So to give you a specific example, for instance, the ICI, the Investment Company Institute, which is the Trade Association for Mutual Funds, has a very well-established and deep uh, group of economists who have collected and know how to use effectively data about the funds and the securities they hold. And as a result, they've been effective at making their case, which is, I think, has stepped up the SEC's game in uh, economic analysis, at least when it comes to funds. But I think it applies to other parts of the markets as well. So my contribution there, I think, is the same uh, perspective. We know we have the Procedures Act that has pushed back in the courts. But I, I want to get a shout out to you there, Walter. I think when I was chief economist just uh, you know, 14 years ago when I joined CFTC, I think one of the things from the very top of the organization, there was a good appreciation understanding of how economic analysis can either you know help bolster your case or any rules that you want to put in place so i think there is a pretty at least a medium-term history of economic analysis being incorporated into the rulemaking and i think even without the administrative the, sort of the regulation that's been happening over the last 10 years that even before that there was a good appreciation depending on who was leading of course um, there's always a bit of a tension between the law and the economics in most of these agencies and that's one reason i think economists like to go to work for the fed because it's a lot more economists than lawyers in that organization. <laughs> that's a true statement. Well, you talk about the data, and that's important because it is easier, and the regulatory agencies do collect a lot more data than they used to. Um, from and so putting that data to work, I was always impressed with all three of you. Your th these individuals that have, have used the data from the agencies to further the policies of the regulatory uh, authorities. But one one of the things that has been cited recently, uh, talking about data is the fact that a lot of trades are happening off exchange on the equity side of things. And Chairman Gensler has even noted that he's going to start to, to review the national best bid and offer system um, to see if that is indeed serving the customer uh, at the end. Um, I think less than 50% of customer uh, trades are now being executed on exchange. Um, can you talk about this? Maybe I'll start with Eric, given your role at the SEC. Um, Talk a bit about whether Chairman Gensler is right to want to review this, given what we know today. Sure. I know Jim and Jeff have a lot to say about this, too. This is this is a topic uh, that people in this area have talked about for years. So the concern is that, uh, you know, naively, when you think about markets, you would you would like to think markets should drive all trade to one point with the idea that an efficient clearing price happens and that that would be good for all investors. But we have a lot of institutional forms in this country. Uh, we've got people hold stocks in various ways. Retail customers, institutional customers are very diverse. We've got a lot of places to trade, right? It's not just the exchanges. We have all the market centers that are broker dealers. So we're unlike most countries in that as opposed to having a few centralized markets, we've really taken the let a thousand flowers bloom tactic in how we regulate markets. And we've gotten the benefits of that. So the innovation's been terrific. Uh, in a lot of ways, retail executions have never been better than they are before. But that said, you're quite right, Walt. There is a concern, and I think most chairmen have have voiced some level of concern. But it's a kind of third rail. It's very it's difficult to understand market structure. This is a tricky area. A lot of people spend their whole lives trying to understand it and work in it. I think the core issues that you get worried when there's a market and half the volume is trading outside of that market. Are they getting the right price or not? We have rules to, to ensure that the price is right in the sense that it's within the national best bid offer, that is the highest bid and the lowest ask. 
we have rules about that. But that said, I think people worry that the, that the integrity of the market prices, the NBDO itself, would be different if you drove all retail trade there. That doesn't necessarily mean it would be better for the retail folk. So I'll stop there and let one of these other guys take a bite at that, because I think there's a lot more to be said. Yeah, I think that's one of the key components of it is that we've made a market that tries to give the best price to everybody, no matter who you are. And retail participants and institutions can differ widely in their informativeness and how much information they're bringing to the market. So the institutions have developed and the, and the trading systems have developed to try to sort out that. And it's no different, I think, than any retail or institutional market that we see for other products. It's just a little more uh, highly specific and pointed in this case because it's electronic. And since we trade stocks not by exchanging pieces of paper anymore, they're debits and credits on a balance sheet somewhere. It's not like picking up a toaster or something at the grocery store or having Amazon deliver it or doing something else um, in your in your shopping spree. And so one of the things that has happened, I think the flowering of this, the blossoming is, this, is the idea that there's some sort of um, um, price discrimination that might be going on. I want to offer a good price to some customers, but I don't necessarily want to offer that exact price to another customer who might be maybe trading it against my best interests. And so I think that's where I don't think anyone ever, I don't think forecast ahead the fragmentation that we'd see today, but it does create these issues of like how much uh, price discrimination do we allow or do we allow any of it? Um, and then what form does that take? All of these issues are so closely coupled that part of the problem is if you try to adjust any one thing, it's going to have knock-on effects on other parts. So it's difficult to deal with. I can just think back to my experience at the SEC and when this was maybe first raised as an issue, and I remember at that time, I think off exchange trades were like 25% of uh, completed trades. And the answer was, well, that's not really big enough to worry about. But now, now I don't think you can say that anymore, that it's it has crept up more and more. And, and I think there are issues with price discovery that we've talked about with market quality. And I think all of those things are worthy of the SEC looking at them, understanding them. And I think some of those issues get back to some pretty basic economic questions about, you know, why do we have exchanges to begin with? And what is the function of exchange? And so I think it would, it would probably be a healthy discussion to have. Well, let's turn to a related topic, which is payment for order flow. So a lot of this national NBVO uh, system also, um, the reason, some of the reason that it's going to certain market makers is that they're paying for that order flow to come to them, maybe because of the price differentials that Jeff had mentioned. So talk a little bit about that incentive. Is that something that serves the customer at the end of the day? I think we've heard some concerns that it's not transparent. They don't really get to see some of that uh, cost in the system uh, compared to other parts of uh, the exchange. So what are your thoughts generally on the payment for order flow issue? And Jeff, maybe I'll start with you. Sure. I mean, that's a good place to start because I think that's exactly right. It's what institutions and and it, uh, exchanges have figured out is like we want to price discriminate. We know that someone trading 100 shares of an individual stock somewhere is not going to be somehow detrimental to my portfolio if I'm a market maker, right? 100 shares here and there is no big deal. If someone comes to me with 10,000 shares and wants to trade, that's a different story. Now I wonder if they're informed, what kind of information do they have? Do I want to take the other side of that trade and other things? So the payment for order flow has evolved from that idea that you know, a bunch of small 100 share trades can be uninformed and we can give them better prices. 
And it obviously makes a conflict of interest, like you said. This was a big issue back in the mid-90s when border flow started fragmenting. We have a bunch of research done on this, and, and Maureen O'Hara up at Cornell had some papers that show payment for order flow has these clear um, conflicts of interest that are entailed. So I think the stature we've had at this stage is um, I had a colleague, Robert Battaglia at Notre Dame, that was wanted to do a study back in the late 90s about firms that did pay and other firms that did not pay for order flow and comparing one to the other. And he found out there was no other bin. Everybody paid for order flow. <laughs> so it was already ubiquitous, you know, 15, 20, 25 years ago now. And so it's an interesting phenomenon that's happened. It's evolved. We do know that it's a conflict of interest. And the, the stature at this stage, I think, from the regulatory end has been, let's monitor that. Let's keep an eye on that. Let's make brokers produce reports that say what their execution quality is. Let's have that that light shined on the market. And then, of course, the, the counterpoint to that, I think, is other guys can talk to this maybe, is that you know, that requires, A, that an investor knows where to find those reports, A, B, that the investor pays attention to those reports and maybe makes a decision on where to send their orders based on any of those reports. Yeah, and I think, you know, this segmentation of order flow makes sense to each market participant. But then I think if you look at it globally across the market, the regulators have to ask, you know, what are what's the impact of that? I, you know, retail order flow is valuable, but probably not for the reasons you might see some retail traders say. It's not because they're being front run, I think. I don't think that's it. It's because it's uninformed and that market makers, wholesale market makers, would rather interact with that order flow than uh, inform institutional order flow. So I think retail investor has benefited uh, overall in having that value recognized. And most retail trades today are done with uh, low or no commission. But there are uh, knock-on effects for the rest of the system. Yeah, I, I think one of the, you know, if you go back in time, one of the reasons payment order flow came about was because of different institutional forms. If you take a fully integrated broker dealer, call it a Merrill Lynch, they've got execution capabilities as well as order entry capabilities. They're an introducing broker in the sense that they got their own customers. There exist brokers that don't have capital markets operations. They collect flow from individuals, but they don't have any way to internally monetize that flow in the way that Merrill Lynch does. And I'm not picking on Merrill Lynch. I'm just saying they can trade against that order flow subject to certain standards. So for that reason, you know, the idea of payment for order flow leveled the playing field in terms of people's business models. And it was seen as a positive force. There's no question there are conflicts, but brokers always have conflicts and they're managed. In this case, the primary tool is, is the principle of best execution. It's just a common law agency duty that brokers have with respect to the orders they receive. You know, one answer to all these things, whenever you have market structure issues that come up, one of the things that's constant is it's the broker who gets the customer order. And the broker is much more pliable, much more flexible in adopting the institutional situations than the regulator is. So I think it's probably pretty fair to lean heavily on best execution and to enforce those principles pretty strongly. But that requires a lot of monitoring on the part of the government to make sure that the standards that the brokers are holding themselves to are adequate to the situation as the situation evolves. I just say one other thing. You asked what the SEC might do here. And, you know, if the SEC is true to form, I think they typically their first reaction is uh, disclosure, more disclosure. Uh, but what makes me pause on that one is that when Chairman Gensler addressed this issue and talked about some of the things that the SEC might be contemplating, I noticed that the shares of one of the 
uh, wholesale market makers uh, declined by more more than 10% right after that statement. So maybe maybe it's the the market is looking at uh, something actually happening here. Well, let's turn to a, a, another related topic um, that is of interest of the retail trader, and that's crypto assets. And we're seeing a lot of interest. If you turn on CNBC, which I have on the TV right now, about half of their coverage is around cryptocurrencies and what's happening with cryptocurrencies. And certainly there's a strong interest among retail traders. Um, my son, who's 18 years old, uh, is trading cryptocurrencies, and there definitely is a generational shift of people who are thinking about money differently. I'm just curious from you know economists that approach this, that are very familiar with, with finance and the dollar and, and, and the, the shift that's going on here, whether you believe we have the proper regulatory structure in place in order to accommodate crypto assets, and this is pretty fast moving, but we'd love to get some general thoughts about uh, what is missing, if anything, from the cryptocurrency regulatory structure. And Jim, maybe I'll start with you. Well, I mean, I think there already are many rules on the books, regulations on the books that I think have been applied in this area. Whether there's more specific crypto-specific type of rules or regulations. I think that's part of what the market is really looking now to Gary Gensler and looking at the task force that's been set up between the CFTC and SEC to see if they see missing uh, regulation. So I think there's a lot of expectation being assigned to uh, particularly Chairman Gensler because of his background in this area uh, to, to provide a roadmap of just where regulation may be heading in the near term and in, in the, the long term. I mean, many of the market participants in this area would welcome more regulation because I think they view that as a, a credential, a good housekeeping stamp of approval that may help them uh, gain institutional participation in these markets and actually help improve the market quality. Uh, but then it becomes a bit of a chicken and egg problem because even though they might want to be regulated, the regulators are not eager to have some of those products under their jurisdiction until they have better assurances about market quality. So, you know, I don't know how we get there, but uh, I think the first test will probably be with the, there are some exchange traded product proposals that the SEC has before them. And that may be the earliest hint we have on just where Gensler SEC is going on this area. Yeah, I would just add one small point that, you know, with Gensler, Chairman Gensler having the expertise he does, perhaps that we can, yeah, he can really provide some clarity to this question of security, non-security that happens in the crypto space. This is, I think, plagued the development of this area for some time. Appropriately so, I think the SEC has been very wary. They've been cautious. But perhaps now uh, some clarity can come to that. Some more precise standards can to be, be developed. So the market can, you know, come up to that line and develop products without having kind of regulatory uncertainty that stifles development. But I think if you talk about why it's in the news, this is an interesting thing. People have said, oh, crypto is the new gold or something. They don't see gold popping up and down 20, 30% on a daily basis. And that's been a big impediment, like Eric says, about the market development. As long as you have a lot of volatility, it's going to make the news. The big question I have and the concern I have, you know, when I was at the CFTC, I had some of these same concerns. Uh, I know the commodity markets are, are governed and there's not a lot of investor protections there. It's a professional versus professional trading scheme. And when a lot of ETFs and other retail products were coming to market in the commodity space, that was a concern that we had when we were there. And I do think, you know, just a simple application of things like there's no, no audit trail. These, there's, there's a clearly 
case that there could be a lot of pump and dumping going on where someone's buying a bunch at one exchange, then pointing around and selling it on another and looking at the price momentum and convincing other people to throw money in. Um, so there's a lot of, uh, I think, Wild West to this market. I think it, it's obviously a nascent market. I worry about the retail investor kind of getting stuck holding the bag at the end of the day. Dude, I'm just curious, do any of you own uh, cryptocurrencies? No, but I found out my son was leasing out his graphics co-processor to those who were mining it. And he was making money, and I was paying for the electricity. So there's that. So I guess I guess I had a small stake for about six months, but I didn't know it. Only indirectly. All right. Well, Jeff, you mentioned you know the the rise of and the volatility in commodity markets. We had your time at the CFTC, but we are seeing rises in prices currently. Concerns about inflation. There's even talk of a commodity super cycle, not too dissimilar from what we experienced in 2007, 2008, leading up to the financial crisis. I'm just curious from a chief economist, what are your views on whether we do have potentially more permanent long-term inflation concerns, or is this transitory coming out of COVID, an unprecedented event? I think we've overstepped a little bit and put too much money into the economy. So I think short term, at least we have some inflationary pressure. I see this, uh, you know, at the restaurant business, they just did a story again the other night where one of my sons works and they, they put actually a surcharge on now in the restaurant menu with a disclaimer, kind of like we did for the oil prices and taxis got to charge a little extra more for each ride. Um, so I'm a little worried in the short run. And then I think there's a lot of decisions to be made still. I don't think it's a permanent problem at this stage. I think some of the problems of the money sloshing around the economy, will, it'll be picked up once the economy starts running again. That, that's going to take some time, of course, because the real economy doesn't move as fast as the treasury checks that hit your bank account. So that's one thing about finance and the real economy. Finance can move very quickly, but the real economy only adjusts on a slow basis, which makes it hard to manage, I think, the economic cycles using monetary policy and things like this. Yeah, I, I'm not sure how much I can contribute on this. I mean, I do talk to a lot of people who are much more knowledgeable on, on inflation issues than, than I am. And I guess what I've heard them say is, you know, first of all, be careful in causing a one-time increase in the price level as an inflation rate. So that's one caution. But I think the other thing that what I've heard from economist colleagues is that there probably are differences across the economy. There are some areas where it may be COVID-related. But there are some areas, particularly, I think the concern most uh, expressed is in the commodities area that may uh, be longer term. Yeah, I think I particularly agree with what Jeff said. I think in some ways it's too soon to tell. I mean, we'll see what the Fed does in terms of uh, whether they, how and when they taper uh, and, and start to take some liquidity out of the economy. At this point, I think for a good reason, people are, people are concerned. You're starting to see core inflation rise. Uh, but I think it's really too soon to tell whether, as you said, Walt, that we're going to have some kind of a permanent, long-term high inflation regime. Uh, you know that that you know now in the distant past that we've had. Um, so hopefully that's that's not going to come. But I think there's still a lot of runway left before we lock ourselves into that. One of the caveats I think on mine is I think the restaurants that are hurting are the ones that have beef, for instance, or pork. And so we know COVID is particular, right? It hit the pork plants in Iowa. It hit a lot of the rural areas pretty hard. And so it's not just the sake of like we get immunized and everyone runs back into work and starts, you know, producing like we used to. It's probably a little bit more muted probably in the grains and things like that because you know, crops are just crops growing out of the field. And so there's not a lot of the interaction that's required to get to the market like some of the meat products. 
I do want to take you, all three of you, back to uh, 2008 and the financial crisis. All of you were in the belly of the beast during that period of time, helping to deal with um, the enormous crisis we had on our hands, you know, coming out of the Lehman crisis and all the, the real estate issues and that we were dealing with at the time. But I do want to ask you just personally, I mean, Eric, you were head of trading and markets at the time, and Jim, chief economist of the SEC, and, and Jeff, the, the head of the CFTC chief economist. But I'm just curious, you know, what uh, from that time are you most proud of? And then what would you have done differently if you had to do it again? And Jeff, maybe I'll start with you. Yeah, that's a good one. I did four congressional hearings on oil prices in the summer of 2008. That was it was a pretty insane time. I do think, though, in the in the end, though, I think cool heads prevailed in that case. I think we were plotting the idea that you know the markets will ration prices. In this case, we didn't know what was going on in consumption, for instance, in India or necessarily China. There was a strong indication that maybe China was stockpiling oil in advance of the Olympics back then. You know, we were telling some stories we didn't really know much, and sure enough, you know, even though prices got inordinately high in in that summer. I think the oil price coming back down to more rational levels on its own. I think that's something I was proud of because there were no gas lines. There was no rationing. There was a 6% decline in consumption that summer. People didn't drive as much. So it had real effects. But of course, letting the market work itself out was, I think, a strong indication that maybe a light hand touch to the economics and monitoring the situation was a better way than trying to intervene and perhaps causing bigger problems. Thinking back, one of the impressions I'm most left with is there was a period of time there, I think, at least with respect to a, the financial markets, it's almost as if we were a country of men and not a country of laws, in the sense that you could really see the difference that individuals made in the financial market. So a specific example, Chairman Paulson, I mean, Secretary Paulson, he was, uh, he was quite at home in dealing with the heads of the big banks. They were people he had grown up with professionally. And he had the ability to work with them in really a, in, in a way that I think a, a political, a standard political appointee to the Treasury, head of the Treasury, would not. Some of the judgments that were made, Ben Bernanke was a remarkable person. He was always cool. He was always collected. He, you know, he was the perfect person for the job at that time. And these people as individuals made decisions that, and those decisions really reflected, I think, their backgrounds professionally. And had you had different people in, I think you would have had different different decisions. That's always been one of the things that struck with me over time in crises, how important the individual is in ways that I think in quiescent times, that's not as much the case. Yeah, I agree with that. And particularly the part about, I think, cooler heads prevailing. I think the thing that I'm most proud of is the work that uh, our office did in providing data that regulators or the policy makers, Chairman Cox and others relied on, particularly with respect to short selling. And I think it was effective. It, it ended up changing minds based when they saw data on who was selling, who was short selling, what the impact was, and it did have impact. I guess the thing that what I wish I had done in 2007, I remember talking to someone from a large hedge fund who pulled me aside to tell me about the credit default protection they were buying against their own prime broker. And I remember thinking that struck me as odd because at that time, all the scenarios were prime brokers looking at the risk that their hedge funds might bring to them. And here was a hedge fund worried about the risk that the prime broker might bring to them. <laughs> and I wish I had been smarter to follow up on that. Now that's exactly right. I remember what Jim's talking about. What the, the thought had been at the time, this 
This really dates back to 2007. Since the prime brokers were regulated, they were going to be, in a way, our window into the hedge funds. And as time evolved, it ended up being the other way around. That's exactly right. Well, to Eric's point, I'm thankful the three of you were in the roles that you were in at that time to advise uh, principals and to make sure we were doing the right thing. Um, I would note on Jeff's point, you know, what I'm most proud of is the fact that uh, we allowed the markets to work and prices to be discovered. And ultimately, the United States became an exporter, the largest exporter of petroleum in the world because people started to, you know, drill oil and frack and do the things to to, to in, re in reaction to those prices. So um, it ended up markets worked, and that's what I'm I'm most proud of. I, I do want to ask you though to to end, and you know, we are in a very divisive political world right now. Um, it's always interesting to see how politics affect different professions and different sciences. And, and um, I'm just curious from the economist's viewpoint, you know, how is this divisiveness playing through economics? We'd love to think that economics are a, a pure science that uh, you try to approach things neutrally without politics affecting it. I'm just curious how you guys are viewing this sort of divisiveness as it relates to the economics field, or is there more of a collegiality still that is holding that that school together? I don't know, Jeff, you want to start? Or? Sure, yeah, there's a, economics people are never in unison, right? <laughs> the joke is always if you have a, ask a bunch of economists to form a firing line, they circle up, right? Because everyone's, everyone's firing in a different direction. It's a good question because one of the reasons I'm in economics is for this reason. So I think Eric and I both come from physics backgrounds where like there's a lot of determinism in the sciences where, you know, if I shoot a, a cannonball at some angle at some velocity, I know exactly where it's going to land. Economics is exactly the opposite, right? We don't know what's going to intervene. We can talk about inflation and we can talk about short term. There's all kinds of things that can happen in the economy in the medium term that changes the direction or the inflection point of where the economy ends up. And for me, that's a very intriguing notion. And one of the reasons I'm intrigued, and we, we get this all the time when I was chief economist, people would ask me like, sort of a normative question. And I said, well, the idea is that we never know, right? We, we talk about fragmentation of order flow. Well, how much fragmentation can we tolerate before there is no good price discovery? Those are questions I don't think that are necessarily going to be answered that we can sort of ease in and to narrow in on the topic and sort of put parameters around that. But I don't think anyone has this dynamic nature of economics itself creates these disagreements. I'm more of an optimist. I'm trying to be an optimist. I, I do think, you know, living, we live in the Beltway and I've lived inside the Beltway now for two decades. <laughs> and you do get a sense though that, you know, there is some us and them mentality in the United States. And so what do I try to do when I was in the government actually is try to use it as a little bit of a bully pulpit to connect people and to get people to understand you know, what is the farmer thinking? What is the banker in small town America thinking? Because I have relatives and friends who live in these places and, and you do sense that there's a disconnect between what's going on in Washington, D.C. and what's out there in the regular world. And I and I think that's that's coming to play in a lot of the policies that we said. The, the crypto, I think, is sort of like, it was originally sort of like, oh, we don't want to deal with the Federal Reserve. The U.S. You know, the central bank is screwing us all. <laughs> Let's start our own currency and start trending that. And we can all trust each other to do that on one end. And so this, this palpable indifference or hatred, perhaps, of what lies inside the beltway, I think is something that economics can actually try to bridge the gap to get people to understand two sides of the issue. And even if we're pointing in different directions, understanding the other side. I am also optimistic. Uh, and I think in my time in government over many years, I've watched economic analysis help change the framing of 
debates. And I think, you know, way back you would have commissioners arguing about different issues. You know, I think this number is too high or I think this number is too low. That's not how they debate anymore. Now it's, you know, show me specifically the data to, to support this proposition. And I think it's changed the tone of the debate and made the debate more productive and analytical. And, and I think it has also made policymakers uh, more transparent in what they do and more accountable for what they do. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that uh, uh, economics is immune from all this, but I think it has the ability to smooth it over. So, for example, let's take ESG. There's been a lot of talk about ESG lately. It can be about disclosure and ESG. It can be about investing principles in ESG. Uh, and that's going to be a tough discussion for years to come. Different political parties want to locate uh, politically in different places there, and maybe that will resolve politically, maybe it won't. But if you analyze that economically, the principles are there's some, there are some clear principles. What's material to investors? What affects cash flows? What are what are what are factors that affect investing? Those kind of things are amenable to economic analysis. I think economics, well applied in areas like that, has the ability to lend some clarity and take a core that uh, of, of of the of the issues and shed light on them. That doesn't mean that we'll. Uh, it will not be subject to political pressures, but I think it can bring some clarity and some uh, objective analysis to, to, to the argument. Jump in on that, Derek. I think that's exactly right. It's called what? Environmental, social, and governance. It's got to be interfacing with the politics of the world, right? Those three words are not necessarily in every economist's rubric before you know, 20, 40 years ago. Well, on that note and on that hopeful note, I appreciate all three of you joining us here today. It was, I have total respect for all three of you. I've worked with you in the past. It's been a pleasure sitting down and, and having a fascinating conversation with you uh, today. So thanks for joining us here today. Walt, it's been a pleasure. Thank you all. Thanks, Walt. Well, we want to thank SmartStream for their sponsorship and thanks to our audience for listening. And as always, we welcome your feedback, issues, and ideas at FIAspeaks at FIA.org. Thanks for listening. FIA Speaks is brought to you by the staff of the FIA. Steve Adamski is our executive producer. Cameron Lane is our technical producer, with additional technical support from Craig Richardson. We welcome your feedback on these podcasts at FIAspeaks at FIA.org. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide investment, tax, business, legal or professional advice to any individual or entity. Unless specifically stated otherwise, neither FIA nor its members endorse, approve, recommend or certify any information, opinion, product, process, service, individual or entity presented or mentioned in this podcast. FIA makes no representations, warranties or guarantees as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the podcast's content. Reliance on the podcast content is done at your own risk. FIA disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special of consequential damages arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on or inability to use this podcast or its contents. Any commercial use, resale or redistribution of this podcast without the FIA's express written consent is prohibited. Copyright 2019 FIA, all rights reserved. For more information, visit FIA.org.